Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now, here's your host, Tom Singer. This is Making Waves at Sea Level, the podcast for those who shake things up in business and are focused on growth and success. My name is Tom Singer, and I have hosted this podcast for over eight years and over 750 episodes. I'm also the new CEO at the Austin Technology Council, so every now and then I get to let my worlds collide and bring to you an executive from the Austin tech ecosystem and share with the whole world some of the great things that the local companies here in Austin are doing. And today, I am happy to introduce you to Henrik Johansson. Hey, Henrik, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So for those of you who don't know Henrik, he is a several time CEO. He has run a whole bunch of startups very successfully, and he has been uh, in Austin since 2001, and he started his first startup out in the Silicon Valley in 1995. So he's been around a long time. He's seen a lot of changes in business. He's built big teams. So this is going to be a great talk about how do you build a business? How do you shake things up in an industry? And what do you do in good times? and maybe recessionary times, and how do you thrive? He is a native of Sweden, but he has now been living in America for a long, long time, so we'll claim him as our own. So, Henrik, let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey. You, you, you moved to the Silicon Valley back in, I think you'd told me it was like 1994, and you started your first company. What was that company all about? It was a lending marketplace, actually, called Credit Land. Uh, and uh, there are... Similar things today, like Credit Karma and Lending Tree, but we were really the first ones to approve credit cards online in real time. So we built a sophisticated decision engine and had a great vision of being able to pull one credit report and approve everybody for any loan in the world and optimize their credit portfolio. And unfortunately, we didn't quite get there. We were a, a victim of the dot-com bust <laughs> in our midst of racing our series. The ERD, I forget which one, when uh, when the whole market collapsed and uh, I had to go through the painful experience of letting everybody go and shutting down the company. So that was my first entrepreneurial journey. <laughs> well, but that is that is a common story of almost all the successful entrepreneurs that, that I interview. Very few people hit it out of the park on their first try. You know, uh, one of the people I would love to interview, I never have, is Michael Dell. And he's one of the few people who hit it out of the park. You know, he's building computers at 18 years old and, you know, 10 years later at a publicly yeah. traded company. Uh, that's not the norm. I think your story is, is more the norm. So let's go back in that time, time machine back to the mid to late eight, I'm sorry, mid to late nineties when it was sort of boom, boom, boom times. And then the parking brake got pulled. What was that yeah. experience like both the boom times and, you know, the collapse of the economy? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? You see a lot of parallels to what just happened in the tech sector, right? The recession was its own animal that hit more equally across all, all different sectors. But the dot-com bust and, you know, here the post-COVID was, was similar in many ways and, and massive layoffs, particularly in tech. And, and the other piece that really, you know, is a deja vu is the, the, the investors, there were board of directors or all these smart people or it's like, go, 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 invest, 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 growth at any cost. And then literally within a matter of a few months, 
it's the opposite. Save, save, save. Don't spend any more money. Get the profitability. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's, you know, as a, as a species, as a, as an industry, you know, you'd think we'd learn more, but, but, uh, I guess certain, certain things are just, you know, inherent in, in, in how markets work and how humans work. So you were a young entrepreneur. You were in your early twenties when, when, when you were doing this. So what, what was that like? Not, I mean, now, you know, you're on your fourth or fifth company, you, you know, you have a little bit of chops under you as, as you're navigating the ups and downs of, of this tech economy. But what was it like then growing a company so quickly and, and sort of those go-go days and then having to, you know, shut it down? What was that? What was that like for you personally? Yeah. I mean, initially it was intoxicating, right? It was so exciting in San Francisco. And I, I know Austin was, you know, in many San Francisco at the time, I think there was a lot of dot-com energy and love. Oh, yeah. But, you know, in San Francisco, the, there wasn't a night without a big dot-com party that, you know, somebody was throwing InfoSeek or Alta Vista or, you know, whatever it might be. And it just, this sense that we couldn't fail, that we were, uh, we were, uh, you know, uh, pioneers staking new ground uh, and that we were ahead of the rest of the world and we were at the epicenter of the world. And it was contagious and, and super exciting and worked super hard. And then, you know, that pretty, you know, very quickly the opposite of that, where I think you and I in a prior conversation talking about a lot of people like, Oh, I, I'm probably going to make 10 million. And so it's hard to imagine that I'm not at least going to make a million. Right. That seems conservative. 10%. <laughs> but the reality is like, it's, it's almost always all or nothing. Right. And so you had all these people that went from being gazillionaires on paper to having zero. Uh, and sometimes even, you know, access on their stock option gains <laughs> and make it even worse. So it, that was a very sobering and difficult experience, um, which I do think a lot of people are seeing today. You know, many people that have been in the, in the market for the last 10 years, both investors and entrepreneurs and, and executives, you know, it's always been good times since 2012, right? <laughs> Yeah, I have, just goes up into the right. I have a couple of young friends who are in tech sales and, you know, they're both, you know, 28 and 30 years old and they don't remember anything other than boom times. Ever since they got out of college, it's been like, hey, you need a job, you raise your hand. You know, you have tech sales, even if you were a mediocre sales guy, four companies are making you offers and doubling your base. And yeah. I've been trying to counsel them that that may or may not be, you know, the story going forward. Because like you said, it's it's very intoxicating and oftentimes, especially when you're young, I was, I was young once, you know, you start believing your own press, right? It's like, oh, yeah. you know, it's, hey, none of this is a problem. And I remember mm-hmm. back in the late 90s, you know, there was so much interconnectivity and so many events and so many parties. And I was quoted in the Austin Business Journal once saying that in Austin, you can have a three name tag day. And a three name tag day <laughs> was you went to a breakfast, you went to a luncheon and you went to a happy hour in between getting all your work done. And everybody was there and it was kind of boom times. And, and then the parking brake got pulled. Uh, I worked in in the late nineties, I worked for a financial printer. So everybody was going public, you know, they had to print all of their, their red herrings and their prospectuses. And there were only three companies in the country that did financial printing. And I worked for the largest one in Austin. I was the sales guy in Austin and, and it, it was amazing until you know, the public markets dried up and everything stopped and then it, then it wasn't quite as amazing. So, you know, we've, we've been through these things before. So after that, after that ordeal, you moved to Austin and uh, you went to work yep. for a company, but then you got the itch to go start your own. Tell us a little bit about Boundless because that was, that was a huge success here in Austin. Tell us about that company. Yes. Uh, I, I met my co-founder, you know, I, my first startup and, and the second one I joined 
had always been about applying technology to some antiquated market in some way, you know, finding a way to do something differently, do something better through technology. And Boundless was very much that. We, we were approaching this stodgy old uh, marketing industry, the promotional product, branded merchandise that or swag that people call it sometimes, the $20 <laughs> logo, million industry. Lo- logoed <laughs> items that you get at trade yeah. shows, right? All the, the golf exactly. balls and the, and the pins. In fact, my, yeah. my children, who are now adults, uh, my children were like 15 years old before they realized that all the little toys you got didn't say like, you know, Ernst & Young on them. They, yeah. I, I would yeah. go to trade shows and just come <laughs> back with all these toys. And they were like, this is so cool. Dad's bringing all these toys home. They, they didn't realize it was just marketing swag. Yeah. Yeah, then, you know, related to that, Fanatics is now, you know, whatever, $28 billion company or something. It's, it's big business. Um, and we built a platform really to, to help take that industry into to the next, uh, next century. Uh, and we, you know, we grew very fast. We, as, as we talked about earlier, we grew in the $100 million business and uh, we sold it. Um, and I ended up working for the for the choir for a few years uh, before I, you know, started my next company, which which was Gamba that I just started here a couple of years ago. Nice. So let's talk about Gamba because I love what you're doing with this company, and I love the fact that you are this experienced, seasoned entrepreneur. You've you've had successes, you've had some less than successes, and now you have this really interesting platform that you're building that that to me is fascinating because I've never heard of anything like it. So tell us what Gamba is and what democratization of product creation means. Yeah, for sure. So first, product. You know, we we in, in the tech world, people think of product, software product. We're we're talking about physical product, real world products, uh, consumer products that you would go and buy on Amazon or Target or wherever it is. And the reality of that is that there is no place to go to create new products, right? There's no one-stop shop default option. You know, you may have heard of Alibaba and, and a lot of people know, okay, if I'm going to go but buy what already exists, I can go to Alibaba and find a factory in China. But when you ask people, where do you go to create what doesn't exist? Nobody has an answer, and the answer is Gemba. You know that's what we what we built it to do, and to really be able to allow people and you know when I say people, our target customers are small, mid-sized businesses that don't have the resources of big corporations, right? If you go in a big company, they have a whole department of supply chain engineers and you know, product developers and and just industrial designers, but but the average small, mid-sized business does not have access to that. So as a result it's really hard for them to innovate, to create new things. Um, and that's what Gamble was created to do, to really lower the barriers, to allow almost anyone the ability to take their ideas and bring them to market in real physical products. Nice. So you've created this way for these companies who want to create some sort of a physical product. Let's, I'm, I'm wearing headphones right now. Let's, let's use that as an example. So a company yeah. wants to create a new set of headphones. Let's say uh, we talked about this on a, another podcast I interviewed you on. Maybe the headphones have a, uh, uh, a solar panel solar on them. Yeah, yeah. So that, that they're, they're powered that way. So yeah. someone has the idea. It's not just a guy with an idea. It's a company. Your focus now mm-hmm. is these small to mid-sized companies. Okay. They have an idea. What do they do and why Gamba? Yeah. So the, the interesting part about product design, product creation is that you need multiple, multiple different skill sets, right? If we use this example of the headphones, there are moving parts. So you're going to need mechanical engineering. There are electrical components. You're going to need electrical engineering. And there's form to it, right? There, there's, there's a design, there's a look to it and functionality. So you need industrial design. So if you're going to successfully create a new 
product design for a set of headphones, you need a minimum of those three people, industrial designer, electrical engineer, mechanical engineer. And ideally you want people that have made headphones before. You don't want somebody that, you know, bread maker or something. You want some, so ideally you want somebody that worked at, you know, uh, uh, Beats or... Uh, Bose or something uh, like that, sure. Bose or you know, Skull Candy, whatever it might be. That bring that very specific expertise. They know exactly how to create this, this new product. So you need those resources. And then after that, you have the design, you need the right factories. You need access to factories and not just any factory. You want a good factory, a trustworthy factory, a factory that it can make the kind of quality that you're looking for, the price point that you're looking for. And then you need to figure out how to get all these different people to work together. And that's where the Gemba platform comes in. So one, there's two sides to the secret sauce to Gemba. One is this talent network and experts and factories. And the other is the, the software that knows how to do all these things. So the moment you plug in headphones, solar cells, the platform will spit out this long list of things that you need to do. It's basically your best practices workflow or project plan that lists maybe 150 steps. Like here's what you need to do for sketching, for design, for concept development, for CAD drawings, and then you know build materials and all this stuff, all these steps that have to go through from sampling, quality control, and then that allows a, a entrepreneur, a, a small business to manage this entire product development process from A to Z, sketch, backward paper napkin, all the way to finished product, like they were a pro, like if they were working in one of these big corporations. Nice. So one of the reasons I wanted to interview you for making waves at sea level is Every industry that I've known you to be in, going back to the, the fintech world with that first startup in the Valley to Boundless, which was in the, the promotional products industry and now and now Gamba, has always been sort of in a way of how do you shake things up in an industry, right? Like I, I knew you best in the Boundless days and you were, you were creating technology to be able to bring all of the processing and all the stuff that they do in the promotional products. So it's not just Becky with a notebook taking an order yeah. that they could yeah. do these things online. You were introducing technology into an antiquated industry and- you know, you said that's what you've always done. So we talk on the show about how do you shake up an industry? How do you shake up your company? What do you do? So what advice do you have for business leaders who want to innovate? I mean, how do you even start? You've done this all along. How do you, how do you even start looking for how do you innovate in an industry? Well, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I mean, personally, I think it always start with some kind of customer insight, right? There's some insight around a specific problem. Uh, I found when I have been in successful and, and maybe not so successful situations, I think it's easy to, to lose track. And as particularly as technologists, sometimes we get so excited about our creation and what we can build. And, uh, and I think it's great innovation. I think more often than not comes from that you see a need in, in the market, right? That you, you have some unique insight about what customers actually are looking for. And then you create from that. It's not the technology that drives it. And certainly there are, there are great companies that start with technology and, and some kind of technology breakthrough and build from that. But I think more often than not, if you're not a scientist, right, that is working on, on, on uh, real research, right? Uh, to me, it's, it's often more about, okay, I can see that there's a need here. There's, there's something that's not happening, that there's something that the market wants almost <laughs> from technology. Uh, that that drives that, uh, and often you know, it, I'd say most of my entrepreneurial activity hasn't been that you know exactly what that is or exactly how to meet that need initially. You just, it starts in some place where you see that there's a need here, and then through evolution and 
MVPs and trial and error to figure out how to meet that need. So as someone who is that serial entrepreneur, there's a lot of people who listen to the show who who either want to rise up in the ranks of their company into leadership where they have the power to shake things up or they have that itch, as you called it in a previous interview we did for the Austin Technology yeah. Council podcast, you know, that, yeah. that those entrepreneurs, after a while, they start thinking, I got to go start something else. What else can I do? What advice do you have for that person who either wants to start their own thing or wants to take their career into that leadership thing? How do, how do they get the chops? How do they grow to the point where they can do this? What, what advice do you have for people who are trying to, to, to get into that position to be able to make a difference? Yeah, so I think you know, if, if, if one is not ready to take the leap quite yet, I think a good start is to start working for a startup. Like, like you and I talked about before, most of the successful founders come from startups because they work in startup before, they learn how startups work, they, they pick up, the best practices and how to move fast and break things uh, without going under. And uh, so I think working at a startup is, is the first good step. It's hard to start something from scratch or come out of college. Certainly there are people like Michael Dell and, you know, the, some of the Stanford grads, you know, Google and others, but more often than not, I think, successful founders, they have worked in other startups before. Yeah. In fact, I actually, I I read a stat the other day that if, if your founder is over, I think it was 45 years old, your odds of your startup being successful are like five times higher. So there is something to be said about, about having some longevity and having been, having been through the ups and downs of that career. So I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you're in a startup, I I would encourage you to, to take initiative and it might sound obvious, but I think that something that people don't always realize in a startup is that the founder or the CEO or, or the C-level, they're always going to look for people to do more and take on more. So uh, I always encourage folks that work for me or work for, for, you know, my managers that take initiative, identify where you want to go, what you want to do in the organization. And odds are people will welcome you <laughs> into more responsibility and take on more, more work with open arms, right? To find what, where, what you excel at, what you're really good at, and, and take initiative uh, because the sky's going to limit. No startup's going to say, wow, wow, no, wait, sit in your corner. Don't take on anything more. And if they do, then go find another startup because they're <laughs> not going to succeed. <laughs> I've got a couple more questions for you, but first I have to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode, like all of them, is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the equipment, training, and guidance to ensure you're going to sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing people who are making waves in business like Henrik Johansson. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know, I know that some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So just a second ago, Henrik, you were talking about the fact that, you know, if you're in the thing, getting started in, 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 the, in the startup, you know, work for a startup, make sure that they're giving you the ability to take initiative and, and do your own thing. Let's go to the manager side. You've obviously managed a lot of people over your 20 years in business. What are some of the things that you look for in employees? Yeah, I mean, in, in a startup, like you, you have to have top talent at every level, right? You have to have people that are willing to run through walls and, and work really hard. Um, while you certainly try to achieve work-life balance, uh, the, 
the truth is in startup, it's, it's hard work. It's a lot of work <laughs> and a lot of uncertainty. So I, I think you, you have to look for that kind of person. Um, I think that's sometimes why people from big companies get a bad rep in startups um, and not always deserve, but, but there certainly is a reason for it because if you come in and expect it's going to be this cush job and you just show up and, you know, then you get your bonus and, uh, you know, annual salary increases or whatever it is that it's just not what a startup is, at least not to me. I have to get in there and get, you're really passionate about solving some specific problem and really quickly iterate and being almost, you know, I like to use words like ruthless, but, but to, to ruthlessly prioritize and always focus on what do we need to learn next? I love, you know, the, the framework that, uh, there was developing lean startup. I forget the name of the author, but but this whole approach to always trying to figure out what is the very smallest next thing I need to do to learn more, and and always being very data driven and and trying to get insights as quickly as possible because time is your most valuable asset as a startup. Right? You, you I have some money that yeah. you need to get through, but but time is you know every day that you're you're burning money, like you know typical so. I had lunch the other day with an entrepreneur here in Austin and, and I was asking him this question about hiring people and finding the right people in, in a startup. And he said, you have to find people who are scrappy. And he goes, but the problem is, is that scrappy isn't something that shows up on a resume. Scrappy isn't yeah. something that you, you know, you, you can tell because they had X job at the last company. And even if they came out of a successful startup, you know, sometimes maybe they were scrappy when they're younger, but now that they've had a, had a buyout, you know, they're, they're not as scrappy as they go to the next stage. And he said, and sometimes people are really scrappy when they're young and single and they got four kids at home and they can't be as scrappy. And so, you know, what, how do you identify that sort of nebulous scrappiness when you're looking for people for your startup? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. I don't think anybody has nailed it. Right. Uh, we, I think we all agree. Interviews are, are only successful half of the time. If, if that, right. It's really hard to assess how good is somebody going to do at a job by just asking them questions. Um, and there's countless books and firms and, you know, podcasts around it, but <laughs> I don't know if anybody's nailed it <laughs> because of probably a lot of what you just said, uh, life changes, you know, uh, the, and motivation changes and, you know, your passion changes about what you're working on. So I think you have to do the best you can in hiring. And then you also unfortunately have to be ruthless in, in firing and quickly assessing is this person right for this job? And the other hard part about startups is that they're growing so fast. Like if you're growing 100% a year, somebody was perfect in position one day, <laughs> 12 months later may not, right? Because they were good at managing three people. Now they have 12 people and they don't know how to do that. So there's just a, a you know, there, there's certain aspects of startups that just require a lot of change all the time and, you know, always be on top of it and scrappy, like you said, <laughs> Well, and this, this same person I was talking to said, you know, he's, he's about our age. So he's been around, around the game a little bit. And he said that it used to be, you know, he would go out and he, he would network in the community and he would look for, you know, if it was a salesperson, he'd look, he didn't care if they were selling tech. It was like, who, who's doing something where it's like, wow, they're here again. They're showing up. Look at that. They're doing this right. They're following up. And he said, you could sort of see it 
you know, in, in the people that you met, he said, now everything in HR goes through some sort of a, a screening process with, with, with resumes. And, and he said, indeed, or one of these other things. And he goes, the problem is he goes, those diamonds in the rough, those, those like rando people who used to like make it to the list and you'd look at them and be like, ah, oh, there's something about them. He goes, they don't make it to my desk anymore because they're being screened out by, by the technology. And so he says that he's gotten back to, going out and participating in things like he's joining the Austin technology council. He goes, I'm doing that for a reason because I need to have my eyes on who are the up and comers in the community that I can train. Cause they've got that thing. He goes, cause he goes, I can't see because they don't have a badge that says, hi, I'm scrappy. He goes, I have to witness it. And he goes, and, yeah. and, and he goes, basically, these are also the people whose resumes don't match what the screening is, is looking for. He goes, so they get pushed out. That's a great perspective. I mean, one thing I, if I see that somebody has started a business or, you know, done that in the past, even though it wasn't successful, even if it wasn't for that long, but just that somebody had the, the fortitude or wherewithal to, to do a side gig or, you know, whether it's something that's above and beyond that just go to work. I think that always indicates a little bit of, you know, somebody has a grit, something has, somebody has a burning desire to do something to get somewhere. Um, so you bring up an interesting point, and that is if I see that they started a business, even if it didn't succeed, that's a plus. Now, a lot of people might think, oh, if they started a business and it failed, that's a minus. But why do you think that's a plus? I mean, I know why, but why do you think that's a plus to look at people who, who went and tried and, and didn't hit it out of the park, but seeing that as a positive? Yeah, but I think anybody who started a business, you get pretty quickly a, a, a view of what it takes to run a business, right? It's, it's very easy if you're, I shouldn't say it's very easy. All jobs are challenging, but if you only worked in a certain, you also worked in sales or in marketing or engineering your entire career, you probably have a limited view of what it takes to run a successful business. But even if you run a bakery or you know a coffee shop or your own consulting firm, you, you pretty quickly get the sense of cash flows and receivables and you know, sales. <laughs> profitability, all that stuff that you don't necessarily think of if you, if you just have a job. So I think that that gives you a more well-rounded perspective than most. Well, and you bring up an interesting point because I worked for myself for 12 years and I was a solopreneur. A couple of times I had, you know, some contractors who worked for me, but for the most part, it was just me. But I had to do the bookkeeping. I had to do the sales. I had to do the marketing. I had to keep the website up. I had to do all these, these little, little things. And a lot of people who do that run around and there's, there's a guy who has a podcast and he always says, you know, he's now because he worked for himself, he's unemployable. And I always joked that, oh no, if I ever went to work for anybody else, I would be the best employee ever because my paycheck's coming in two weeks. As long as they, they do their job, you know, it was like, I, I learned running my own business for 12 years that, oh, I respect my boss because my boss is the one who has to stay up at night and say, are we making payroll? Uh, whereas, you know, you have to do that for yourself. Even if you're a solopreneur, you still have to make payroll. Absolutely. All right. So as we wrap up this interview, what's the biggest piece of advice you would have for a business leader that you just see that sometimes you think, how do business leaders not know this? I wish they all knew it. What's the piece of advice you wish everybody knew if they want to shake things up and succeed in business? That's a good question. Um, what, I, what I feel to miss often and, and maybe the hardest thing to do is to get complete clarity to me, at, at least from a CEO perspective, I, I see that and I work on it every day, that what is it that must get done 
right? And in a startup, it's so, like we talked about before, you have so limited time, you have limited resources. And to really have this absolute clarity and what is the most important thing that we need to work on and that we need to accomplish as an organization today, this week, this month. And in a startup, it changes, right? It shouldn't change every day, hopefully. But but to have a process around that, can we we work with a we worked with a management coach a while back, uh, Kirk Dando, and a Brett Hurts worked with him too. And uh, Kirk, Kirk's awesome. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know him well, but Kirk Dando's the real deal. Yes, awesome, and it helped us really put together a framework because we were our management team. We we are different ages, different regions, and, and really needed a a very formal way to work together and make sure we agreed on what the priorities are, what the goals are, how we measure those. And he helped us implement something in both the growth playbook. And it really helps drive that clarity. It's like, okay, out of a thousand things that we could do, what are the things that we absolutely have to do? And how are we going to measure if we do those well or not? Because, you know, even if you have those, the best people and they're gritty and you have exciting things, you've got to, you got to uh, prioritize really well and make sure you're working on the really on, on the right things. And, and the second part I'd say is listen to customers. I find it's so easy to get stuck in the four walls of your you know uh, of your office and guide a lot of what you do by opinion <laughs> um, because there's a lot of opinions and everybody you know values their own a lot, uh, but. When in doubt or, or before you're in doubt, talk to your customers and make sure that what you do is really driven by an understanding of what, what it is that they need and how you're servicing them. I think that, that that's everybody's responsibility, but the CEO certainly can never lose track of that. But in the end, there's somebody paying for what you're doing. And if you're not delivering value to them, then your artists are not going to get any profits out of it. Excellent advice. So, Henrik, if someone wants to find out more about you, more about Gamba, how do they find you? You can email me at Henrik at Gemba.com. That's H-E-N-R-I-K at Gemba, G-E-M-B-A-H.com. I think that would be best or pick me up on LinkedIn and connect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a guest here on Making Waves at Sea Level. I've known you about 20 years and it was a lot of fun to sit down and interview you both for this show and for the show Austin Tech Connect. So for all of you listeners who don't know about Austin Tech Connect, that is the Austin Technology Council's official podcast that we just launched like eight weeks ago. So go and check that out and subscribe to that as well. And then tell all your friends to listen to this episode uh, because we know you liked it because you're still here 31 minutes later. Hey, Again, like I said, thank you very much. Subscribe to the show on Apple, on Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast joy. And then go out there and make waves in your own business and have some fun along the way while you're doing it. And remember this, whatever you do, find a way to positively impact the people who you encounter today and every day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.